him. Right, we're recording. So my, my name's Josie Kettle and I'm the project curator for Beyond the Binary and I'm here with Mara Gold today who is um, a researcher on the project and has been undertaking some really fascinating work uncovering um, stories to objects in the collections that many of us had never heard, you know, had any idea about. So we're here to talk about some of those things today. Can we start off by um, hearing a little bit about who you are and why you became involved in Beyond the Binary? Yes, sure. So I am a uh DPhil or PhD student here at Oxford and um, with a keen interest in museums and have kind of worked in museums in the past as well. Um, so I was uh, obviously very excited by the Beyond the Binary project and wanted to definitely get involved. Um, so I came on board to uh, look into what there might be in the existing collections, how we can draw LGBTQ stories out of those and also to see, you know, look into some potential objects that... Um, may be purchased or commissioned for the exhibition or for interventions in the cases um and yeah now they can't get rid of me so <laughs> and we never want to <laughs> <laughs> i must just um explain for those listening that mara wears the most amazing clothes <laughs> and today can you maybe explain your amazing outfit today <laughs> uh, today i am wearing uh some dungarees which are pink and black they have mouths all over them with um teeth I'm not sure that described it very well. Perfect, you get an idea, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry to make you describe your wardrobe. <laughs> oh, I should have worn my Igina dress. <laughs> you should, yeah, next time. That, yeah. That'll be for podcast series two. Yeah. Watch out, everyone. <laughs> um, okay, so you said a little bit about what you've been doing. So you've been researching, um, uh, creating a long list for objects in the collection that might be relevant to the Beyond the Binary themes and also looking at new material to um, collect. Did you want to talk about some objects in particular that you've been researching? Because you've been looking at a really broad range of um, uh, locations and um, um, time periods. So what would you like to talk about? Sure. So I think maybe um, I will talk about, I guess, how I began my research or the objects I sort of started focusing on and the reason reasons why. So uh, two of the routes I sort of went down, and actually they are interrelated, was um, one was to kind of look into... Um, how, you know, mythologies, uh, well, into specific mythologies that maybe have been taken on by uh, contemporary activists or LGBTQ communities, or even those in the past, um, and kind of relating objects in the collections to contemporary activism via mythology, uh, because I didn't really want to impose kind of queerness on objects that weren't you know, aren't necessarily considered queer or didn't have a queer owner or an LGBTQ owner. So uh, I began looking through um, into kind of world mythologies and um, LGBT, LGBTQ connections to those mythologies. And the other thing that was uh, really important to me was uh, being from New Zealand. Uh, I'm sort of keenly aware of the effects of colonialism on um, indigenous communities. So I wanted to look into, um, you know, pre-colonial uh, communities, particularly in, you know, the Pacific Islands and New Zealand, areas I'm sort of more familiar with and familiar with the history of, uh, and to see how they might have had different ideas about gender and sexuality prior to um, the British or Europeans um, coming over and making horrible laws and basically being horribly racist and kind of restricting their culture, oppressing them uh, and not allowing them to express these kind of... Um, their uh, sexual and gender identities. Uh, so, and particularly when you look at cases in the Pit Rivers, such as the um, 
Cook case, um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a very lovely case. There's some great, lovely objects in there. But um, to me, the, the part that was missing was the fact that, you know, a lot of the culture was taken away and oppressed um, and eradicated after this first contact with the Europeans. Uh, so that was something that was important to me. So I began looking into uh, objects, uh, you know, first from New Zealand. So I... Um, began looking at uh, kind of, you know, sort of the, there's a particular origin story in um, kind of Maori mythology relating to homosexuality or uh, the Maori word uh, taktapui, which is more of an umbrella, it's used more as an umbrella term now for LGBTQIA or queer. Uh, the original definition, which was published in an 1840s uh, English, uh, sorry, Maori to English dictionary, uh, was an intimate companion of the same sex. Um, and so I was looking at the story relating to that and seeing maybe, you know, do we have some objects that could relate to the story? So um, the story is relating to um, kind of two male lovers uh, who basically, you know, one was married and um, they, you know, they kind of had this uh, this longing for each other. And so they would sit, um, you know, kind of either side of the water and they would play uh, the flute to each other. Um, and <laughs> there were two kinds of flutes that they used. Uh, one was a, a koawa flute and the other one was... Oh, Oh, yeah, a Puturino flute. <laughs> so a Kawawa flute and a Puturino flute. Um, and they would play this flute to each other and they kind of, you know, sort of, well, they'd already sort of, I guess, fallen in love, but they um, expressed their feelings to each other by the sound of this flute um, over the water. And so I found, uh, you know, examples of these flutes within the collections and I wanted um yeah, to kind of use those as sort of a symbol for this story and use them as a visual way to tell the story because we obviously don't have any objects from the story itself. <laughs> um, and so I, yeah, started kind of um, looking also into the sounds that these sorts of flutes might make and, and sort of playing recordings of them and workshops and that sort of thing. So people kind of really got a, an idea of, of the sound they were making it. And also... Um, how it's related to the importance of music um, to the contemporary Takatapui or queer community. There are a number of music groups um, and kapahaka groups, which is uh, kind of Maori singing groups that are queer or LGBTQ. And um, that's a really important part of their kind of activism and expression. Uh, so that was kind of one avenue I went down. Um, and then, of course, I was looking into... Uh, other, you know, the other Pacific Islands, because um, again, so you know, the the when, so I should have mentioned before, when obviously after the Europeans came into New Zealand, they made homosexuality illegal. So whilst it wasn't, you know, you know, necessarily a, a, a gay utopia prior to the Europeans, it was something that kind of, you know, wasn't necessarily thought of as a bad thing. That you know, it's written about in Maori texts, and those texts have been, you know, studied by scholars actually quite recently, well, within the past kind of 10, 20 years. Um, and a scholar who I was kind of in touch with, called Elizabeth Kerikeri, um, she she was the one that was kind of um, sort of leading the scholarship into the story, um, and sort of made you know 
I guess, uh, kind of discovered that actually this this myth or this story was actually kind of canon back then, and and, and it wasn't that there was a different version of this kind of story where it was just a you know a, a straight man and woman um, <laughs> kind of marriage. So um, and didn't add on the extra bits like, for example, the male lover and the fact that in the end they all um, one of the the men in the couple um, got that you know his partner to actually marry his sister. So they actually all lived together in a lovely sort of four, a nice you know kind of I don't know maybe maybe almost a polyamorous group. Um, so yes, now now because of the scholarship that's been um, done around these very early. Uh, Maori texts. In fact, some of the some of the first um, written Maori texts, because um, you know there was there was no written text prior to the Europeans. Uh, so yeah, so that's now kind of canon. Um, so again, I was like, okay, so um, let's look into other Pacific Islands, and there were um, you know various communities I had previously been aware of in the Pacific Islands, for example, um, in Samoa, the Fafaine, uh, and in Tonga, the Fakalete, which is um, there are different kind of descriptions of these communities uh, in English, and um, I guess the uh, I guess it's most often kind of seen as as a third gender, um, or kind of you know equated with maybe kind of a two spirit. Obviously not the same, but kind of equated with two spirit communities um, in North America. Um, and it's a tradition within um, you know Samoa and Tongan and other kind of Pacific Island um, societies where this sort of uh, third gender, um, you know, actually have kind of a quite high status in society. Well, they, they especially had a high status before the Europeans. Again, once the Europeans arrived and made horrible oppressive rules and laws, um, they were, you know, they weren't as highly celebrated. Um, and today that they're kind of regaining their place um, in society, it would seem. I mean, there's still a lot of issues. So, sorry to interrupt. So um, they lost... Um the celebration element was lost, but there was still a continuity in some sense. There was still a continuity. Yeah, I mean, they, they still existed, but they weren't. Um, you know, because uh, but prior to the Europeans, um, you know, a lot of the the people in these communities of Fafaine, Fakalete, they're actually from very high status families, and in fact, um, you know, sort of. Um, children that were were male born or amab if you like um uh, that were part of high status uh, families or, um were often that weren't the first born so they weren't going to inherit the title or the money they were actually encouraged often to um to sort of i guess transition or or become one of these sort of third gender type people because it was you know a you know a good and stable life for them so is that correlation between status and and um, identity then gender identity yes so. exactly so um so they were often um you know sort of employed in um very kind of you know high status or even kind of royal households um in uh, Tonga for example uh, Fakalete were often um Kind of companions to, you know, very high. There were there were often kind of quite high status women um, in Tonga. Again, that was sort of pushed down by the Europeans. But often these kind of fakalete um, would be kind of companions um, to these high status women, and they were very much associated with the production in Samoa and Tonga um, uh, with the production of bark cloth. So they were known to be kind of they were they were encouraged to study the the um, 
you know, methods of creating bark cloth. And they were considered to be very good at creating this kind of bark cloth. And, you know, often their pieces were sort of prized. Um, so I was, yeah, I wanted to look into, because there is, you know, quite an extensive collection of bark cloth uh, in the Pitt Rivers. And again, we don't know who they belong to, whether they were made by people in these communities. But I wanted to kind of look at, uh, you know, the methods of how these these pieces were made to, to understand what, you know, their lives would have been like, how what they would have been doing with their days um, mm. in creating these cloths. And um, also uh, looking at specific uh, bark cloths. So there's, you know, a mourner's outfit uh, or mourner's dress that I'd been looking into. And not only is this kind of associated with these... Um, communities through you know their skill and production of them but there's also an interesting element there with um these kind of uh, bark cloth outfits and also various outfits relating to these um sort of high status women that i was speaking about earlier um where you you know you could you had um you know very specific types of outfits and uh, attachments to these outfits such as feathers and that sort of thing that would show that you're a certain type of um, person so uh, particularly as I was saying high status women um, they were often kind of there were there were there were certain um, ones of these women particularly in Tonga again who were kind of seen almost as like masculine women um, and they showed that very much through dress and through these kind of bark cloth um, ceremonial outfits and, you know, the numbers of feathers and, and beads mm. and things that they had on them would sort of indicate that status. Um, and there has been a fair amount of research done into, actually into the uh, the bark cloth in the Pitt Rivers from a previous uh, PhD researcher mm. who um, has published actually um, some quite interesting work on these um, outfits and the status of these kind of women, well, masculine women, as 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 they might say, and it was particularly these women that were considered to be masculine women that would um, not only wear these outfits but also um, might have a facalete as a companion. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting because um, you say um, that some of this work has been done in the past. There's been some research um, into the Pitbull's collection specifically. Um, but for me, um, what's really important about this project is that we're trying to bring the stories through into the gallery. So while the research might have already been done in some senses, um, it hasn't found its way into the public domain. So I think um, what's really exciting about the work that you're doing is that we'll be um, putting um, your research and the stories that you're uncovering alongside the material in the museum um, and for beyond the beyond the um, duration of just the exhibition. Because I don't know, maybe if you if there's anything that you want to say about that, how you might see the legacy of your research playing out, would you want to see it permanently kind of told in the gallery spaces? Obviously, we're working on a temporary exhibition, but what do you? What would you like to see the outcome be? <laughs> yeah, how, exactly. How, how should things change <laughs> materially in the museum? Exactly, because, you know, it's all very well, um, you know, having this kind of academic research into objects or into, um, you know, I guess the fashions and, and and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, a lot of this research is not accessible to the public. You know, you're not really going to go into the Pitt Rivers Museum and think, oh, I'm going to look up what a previous PhD researcher did on these bark cloths, um, you know, because there's nothing in the labeling to really indicate that there is this work based around, specifically around gender um, and around kind of different or kind of, I guess, non-conforming genders. Um, so for me, it is really, really important to have kind of permanent interventions um, in these galleries, and, and particularly the Cook case. 
the, you know, as I said before, the cook case is a very lovely, shiny case. A lot of money was put into their into that case. Um, but I think, you know, to not have this kind of these men the mention <laughs> you know mm-hmm. the the oppression basically mm-hmm. to to kind of kind of uh, in a way gloss over mm-hmm. the oppressions that um resulted from you know these cook voyages because you know that was very much the beginning mm-hmm. of the oppression and of the eradication of these um gender and sexual identities so i you know <laughs> If 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 I were in charge of everything, I might One you know I'd probably yeah, exactly <laughs> I'd put probably new labels everywhere, um, and so I think for me what's really important about this pro- project, um, you know, we're looking at you know beyond the binary. Obviously, there's a focus on kind of gender and sexuality here, but I think you know the um, connection between kind of queering the museum and decolonizing the museum is very strong. Um, and, you know, without trying to kind of speak for communities that we're not necessarily a part of, yes, obviously we consult with these communities, um, but I think, you know, the process of querying the museum and, and questioning the museum yeah, it has to be tied in with decolonizing the museum. I think you can't have one without the other. I, I like how you said, how you said, um, can't have a queer, um, a kind of querying project or process without it being um, interlinked with decolonisation, it, it's all part of the same same process. And as your research has really clearly highlighted, you, we can't be looking at um, ethnographic items in the collection without addressing um, the legacy of colonialism and coloniality now. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but I mean, because, you know, when you are... You ha- you basically you have to decolonize um, certain well, at least certain aspects of the museum when you are looking into these queer histories because um, the queer hi- the queer histories of the LGBTQ histories are there but they have been cloaked and oppressed by mm-hmm. colonialism so once you kind of remove that cloak the possibilities in the museum in terms of um, queerness or LGBTQ um, themed objects or collections or cases. Um, are so much, are so much larger because you're 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 kind of seeing things from a new perspective. You're not seeing things from this kind of very white or British or European perspective um, that very much was in play when the museum was started and when the first objects were collected. So of course, they weren't going to acknowledge any of these kind of queer stories or LGBTQ or kind of um, you know themes of gender and sexuality when the collection started. So. Um, you know, there there could be, you know, so much more in the museum that we just don't know about because, you know, these histories were ignored. So I think it is very important, even if we're not finding objects that we know, you know, spe- were specifically owned by an LGBTQ or queer person. It's really important to use these objects as kind of a visual example to show that these histories did exist before they were wiped out by um, the British and European. And unfortunately... Um, because a lot of the traditions were kind of oral traditions and they weren't written down. You know, for example, in New Zealand, there wasn't there weren't there wasn't any written mm. language. Um, so, yeah, all, all we can really do is kind of, you know, follow these oral traditions and kind of speak to people within these communities and sort of bring these stories out um, through the use of objects that are in the collections that we can use as kind of a visual aid, if you like. <laughs> what do you think? So um, it's quite clear why this work might be important to some of the um, our Indigenous partners that we're working with. What do you think 
the kind of value of telling this story in Oxford, um, in, in the UK, in the Pitt Rivers Museum is. So um, I'm conscious that the majority of our visitors coming through the museum um, might not identify um, as, as queer or they might not be related to the communities that the objects come from. But I'm hoping there will still be a real power in um, all different types of um, people um, engaging with this work. What do you think the power might be of having this exhibition in the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford? Yeah, I mean, I guess because, you know, Oxford is such a centre for, you know, not just for academia, but for, um, you know, we get a lot of tourists in Oxford as well, visiting groups, a lot of school groups, um, and even international school groups. Um, and, you know, there's also, you know, people often forget there is, you know, a large community outside the university um, in Oxford. And, um, and you know, so... Um, it's you know it's it's great to I guess there's you know so many different ways that you can reach out to people um, by having an exhibition or a project like this at the Pit Rivers um, and you know by having this kind of uh, beyond the binary or LGBTQ focus there's um, you know all sorts of possibilities to reach out to I guess you know local communities that are often ignored by the university and by the museums and things aren't really kind of targeted to these people because. Um, you know, we're all stuck in our snobby ivory tower. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that on here. But um, (laughs) so there are these amazing possibilities to kind of reach out to those communities and, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or not just to reach out to them in terms of being visitors, but also, you know, in terms of getting involved um, in the project, I'm sure. You know, whoever whoever's listening to this may have you know probably heard about the community curators and that sort of thing, and all sorts of kind of community led events, um, such as the you know late night event, for example. And the late night events are actually a great way to bring in the community. Um, but aside from that, you know, with Oxford being um, you know seen as kind of this like uh, center of, of of you know world class leading research, although so I think again. It was, was it number one again? I think it was Oxford was voted or, or placed as number one again. So um, to have, you know, um, a project like this in uh, an institution that is considered to be, you know, a world leader, um, you're going to have a lot of other, um, not just museums, but, you know, academic institutions um, and all sorts of, of people and organizations looking to the Pitt Rivers and looking to this project as you know, I guess as a leader and, and maybe um, kind of, you know, it might inspire um, other places that aren't necessarily seen as, you know, so as, as pre- prestigious as Oxford um, to kind of carry out um, projects like this. Um, and also the fact that it's in this kind of ethnographic anthropological museum. Um, you know, there, of course, there have been other um, LGBTQ projects in museums in the UK, but none in a museum like this. So it is um, such an important opportunity uh, to, to, to yeah, use Queering the Museum, as I was saying before, um, to decolonize the museum and to show people that it's actually, you know, it's not just okay <laughs> to kind of queer and decolonize a museum like this. It's actually what you should be doing. Um, you know, if you, um, it, it's basically, I think it's, I think it's a responsibility mm-hmm. um, when you're, you know, uh, working in an institution like that or involved or, you know, in, in whatever way you're involved mm-hmm. is, I think is a responsibility um, to um, if you're not at least making efforts to kind of decolonize the place, 
to at least um, be very um, overtly, in some ways, critical, or you know, at least show people that um, you know what that there were these kind of oppressions um, placed on, well, basically everyone in the past by the British and the European Europeans. Um, so I think it's really important to make mm-hmm. a statement like that at Oxford um, as well. And you know, people who aren't, you know, maybe don't. I, aren't at the museum specifically to see this exhibition or, you know, don't identify as LGBTQ. Um, it's amazing, you know, to, to kind of maybe come on a visit to this museum, walk in expecting your kind of very traditional um, Victorian-style museum, and then you're like, wow, this is, ama- exactly, this is an amazing <laughs> yeah. exhibition. It's a chance to learn more um, about um, the communities that are already mm-hmm. displayed in the exhibition, but also to learn, you know, um, learn more about kind of contemporary communities. And and again, once there are um, case interventions in place, I think that's going to be mm-hmm. kind of the key important thing to actually, um, I guess, uh, maybe make visitors more open-minded or um, you know maybe change their perspectives, mm-hmm. not only um, about. Um, you know, LGBTQ people, but about um, these kind of, yeah, communities that were oppressed. They, you know, probably (laughs) might not know these stories because Mm -hmm. we only have this very kind of British version Mm -hmm. of history. So... Thank you. Um, one of the things that I'm really excited about that's come out of your research is um, the opportunity for us in the museum to display historic material alongside really unexpected contemporary material. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been at the museum for six years and there hasn't I haven't seen much of that um, juxtaposition or um, linking between very contemporary material and um, historic material. Um, for me, that's really exciting because it shows uh, continuity. It, it, it does. It's quite disruptive. I think it disrupts people into mm-hmm. thinking and stopping and pausing. Um, one of the the key object groupings that I'm thinking about um, in terms of contemporary material is uh, the Carmen traffic light, which mm-hmm. you, you um, <laughs> identified as an object for us to collect. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Carmen and the the historic material in the collection that um, that that object will be displayed alongside. Yeah, sure. So. Um... I yeah had been doing some research into um, the Takatapui or LGBTQ um, community in New Zealand, um, and I was looking at kind of the uh, histories of contemporary activism and also um, you know the importance of the Takatapui to kind of the Maori community and um, well I guess New Zealand in general. Um, so I um, yeah I was looking into kind of the um, origin story involving kind of music and um, the two flutes and the two male lovers kind of playing their flutes together. Um, And then I kind of started to look into, um, I guess, more more recent histories um, of the Takatapui community. And one of the first figures that came to mind for me uh, was Carmen, who was, um, you know, some people will call her a drag queen but essentially um you know kind of a trans a trans woman she was um uh from the wellington area which is also where i'm from in new zealand so of course she was very well known to me but she's not just well known in in wellington she's well known kind of throughout the country um and she was particularly prominent um 
in the 70s. Um, she ran a kind of cafe club type place, which was essentially kind of a home for all the sort of misfits and, you know, obviously the LGBTQ community, but, you know, kind of anyone that sort of didn't really belong in kind of mainstream culture felt very, very welcome um, in her establishment. And she kind of did performances um, and that sort of thing. And um, she also sort of uh, got involved in politics. Uh, so she uh, ran for mayor. Um, unfortunately, she didn't win, but she she came close. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, you know, her whole kind of campaign was based around LGBTQ um, rights. Um, and uh, she, yeah, she sort of was just, uh, I, I can't really sort of equate her with, um, any kind of contemporary figure because, you know, she just had this this kind of status, this this kind of persona that, you know, anyone who ever met her or sort of, you know, came in, in contact with her just have, you know, always have these kind of amazing memories of sort of, you know, what a warm and amazing and, you know, this unique personality she had. Um, and so, you know, uh, a couple of years ago uh, in Wellington, the, the Wellington City Council uh, wanted to honor Carmen, um, you know, which which again goes to show how important she was. She's not, you know, she's never forgotten um, and that she wasn't, you know, just important, you know, to the LGBTQ, to LGBTQ community. She was considered to be important to the whole Wellington region, essentially. So they created um, traffic lights, uh, well, pedestrian crossing lights, uh, with her silhouette um so uh when you cross the streets in kind of parts of wellington that um she was particularly prominent in for example um uh, a street called cuba street which is kind of the kind of tr uh, sort of alternative i guess uh street in in wellington um so all the traffic lights there you're gonna be wait you're gonna be waiting for carmen to go green <laughs> to cross the street and so i was like oh it would be you know um i got very excited by this and you know we're, we're telling um other people about it on the project um for example, you, Josie. <laughs> I got very um, excited. And Josie got very excited. Everyone got pretty excited about this. So I was like, right, we need one of these for the exhibition. Um, so yeah, just uh, emailed the Wellington City Council and they very kindly sent the silhouette for free. Not the whole traffic light, but the silhouette. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, um, for me, that's a very exciting way to kind of connect um, more modern stories Um kind of with this kind of tucked up we uh, mythology and history and to show that actually um you know despite the uh european oppression that the tucked up community members of the tucked up community still you know had this very high and important place um in society and sort of really kind of you know common was almost like this mother the mother of the community um and i think it's yeah very much um sort of connected to the sort of tucked up community and 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 you know what it's like to be part of that community mm -hmm. um and everyone sort of looking out for each other mm -hmm. and yeah <laughs> so it's really amazing to be able to be telling that story um in the pit rivers and i think um just talking through um, the objects that we're including the exhibition with some of our community curators and some of our volunteers and um, the young people that come and use the museum. Um, 
some of them have found it really affirming really that there's these stories that are being highlighted then that they've never known about that actually um while there's obviously lots of oppression still in in most other cultures um around queer lives there are really amazing um examples of celebration and victory and i think that's really important so while we're telling um we're really trying to tell the colonial story and the impact um, of, of um, as in Mara's words, the really horrible laws and all the awful stuff that has happened and the legacy of that. We're also trying to talk about the the victories as well and kind of balance that out so people have like hope and examples of success. So yeah, I think Carmen's really um, powerful for me and I'm really excited that we're going to light her up too as, <laughs> as a working traffic light to show um, uh, yeah success stories and really show that um, there are there's positivity within this. Just one more thing. I thought it's also important to mention, um, you know, objects or, or, or stories that are kind of closer to home as well. You know, there um, there are. I, have a, I just wanted to quickly mention the old witch in the bottle because I know that is, you know, one of the most popular. Everyone um, comes in asking for the witch yeah, in the bottle yeah. in the museum. So this object is um, the object most popular, one of the most popular objects for school kids. So it's something that kids go straight to and look at. Yeah, so yeah, I thought I'd um, just you know, mention the witch in the bottle, um, you know, because I was also very much interested. I, I, I was drawn to this object, you know, um, well, one, for personal interest, and two, you know, as Josie was saying, it is uh, an object that's kind of focused on, um, you know, particularly for schools, and also a lot of people come into the museum and like, where's the witch in the bottle? I want to see that. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not actually dispa- displayed particularly prominently. There's not a huge amount of labeling that goes with it either. Um, so I was very intrigued by this object and I, you know, I had always known there was a very strong connection between witchcraft and the queer community um, and, you know, particularly in kind of um, queer sort of pop culture and that sort of thing. Um, but I knew that there was kind of a long history and also, you know, the fact that, that you know, people, women that were persecuted as witches, you know, were often persecuted as witches for other reasons like, you know, being gender nonconforming or being a lesbian. Um so I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, we could tell some stories about that by using, I was like, oh, what, what's a good witchy object? Okay, witch in a bottle. But then as I kind of actually read into the details, um, I realized that actually this object was collected by um, Margaret Murray in 1915. And uh, Margaret Murray was um, an Egyptologist and a folklorist that, um, you know, I'd already been kind of familiar with um, through kind of my background in archaeology. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow. Score. It was collected by Margaret Murray. There's an interesting history there with Margaret Murray and actually um, contemporary LGBTQ activism. Um, so, you know, Margaret Murray developed this kind of witch cult theory, this Murrayite witch cult theory. Um, and within that, she was, you know, she basically developed this very elaborate um, theory about this idea of what she thought this, um, you know, witchcraft might have been in the past, um, you know, saying that actually, you know, these these witches were real. These are the kind of rituals they were undertaking. There was, you know, it was all, it was, um, you know, draw, drawing elements from all sorts of um, kind of pagan traditions, you know, including classical, including, um, you know, ones more close to home, British, um, you know, Druids, all, all sorts of things. And also she, she was talking about, you know, particular figures like Joan of Arc, who, um, you know, was she was sort of saying was, you know, a mom for the cause, um, not not for the Christian cause, but actually for the cause of witchcraft and also for the cause of, you know, even, you know, sort of being just sort of gender nonconforming. So, you know, that's what she was saying, basically. That's, um, 
that's what she was a martyr for. So this, these ideas were taken up kind of later in the 60s and 70s. Um, one example is Arthur Evans' book, um, Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture, which basically, um, you know, kind of elaborated on on her ideas. It, you know, changed change things a little bit, but use uh, use her ideas as Mariette witch cult theory as a basis, um, and then looked into further detail into figures like Joan of Arc, but again, pushing that further and, um, you know, sort of saying basically either they were LG- they're LGBTQ in some way, either gay, or maybe trans or gender non-conforming, um, and basically saying, you know, you should, if, if you're gay, you should be a witch, essentially. Of um, you know, that it was kind of the sort of natural connection between the two and that um, there was this kind of real power in it. Um, and from that book, that publication, and other similar publications, um, a lot of activism kind of grew out of that. And a lot of activism that was based in rituals. So there was sort of, you know, you know things like sort of dance circles and that sort of thing oh, that almost kind of mimic this sort of contemporary well, not mimic but inspired this is the correct inspired sort of these contemporary like flash mob activism and that sort of thing um you know it's i just find it so interesting that you know it this kind of 70s lgbtq activism that has you know very much you know influenced the activism that we have today was in turn influenced by these ideas about witchcraft and ritual. Um, so this kind of, you know, there are, there are reasons for these um, this connection between queerness and, and kind of witchcraft. A lot of people don't know the reasons, but they feel, you know, particularly drawn to it. I know that I was always kind of drawn to to witchcraft and, and paganism and Wicca. And I, you know, hadn't really known why. And there is actually, you know, very good reason for it. So I just wanted to, yeah, speak a bit about... Um, about the witch in the bottle and kind of um, objects that are close to him because, you know, there are objects, you know, even from the UK or there are um, histories from, you know, from the UK of um, of, of, of queerness and, you know, LGBTQ histories and, and, and being gender nonconforming that were also, you know, oppressed within this country as well, so. <laughs> I think what we've, what we've kind of been able to show in the exhibition is that the oppression from coloniality and um, pa- uh, patriarchy is, is universal, right? So even, I think what we've unpicked in the exhibition slightly is that even if you don't know you're affected um, by colonialism, you are. Yes, <laughs> exactly, so, exactly. And, and, you know, using the very um, local object, of, I think it comes from Sussex, doesn't it? The Witch in the Bottle, yeah. very um, southeast object to talk about that is, yeah, really fascinating. And I'd like to advocate for um, a flash mob interpretation of this object. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> can, that, can that be something that you work yeah, on? <laughs> exactly, even if it's just me. Yeah. I will do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for um, talking about your research, Mara. Um, and, and yeah, everyone must come and listen, uh, look at the exhibition and um, hopefully we'll discover loads of new narratives about uh, the Pit Rivers and um, things that will mean a lot to them, hopefully.